Hello and welcome to season two of Chatting to a Friend. Season one was the most amazing experience for me and the life lessons and wisdom I learned from my guests, plus the fun I had was absolutely beyond my wildest dreams. The goal for season two is to add more variety and diversity to my guest list. I absolutely love adventure and sport and so those will still feature heavily, but I wanted to talk to more women who have very different life experiences to mine, careers, backgrounds and challenges that I wanted to learn more about to widen my understanding and broaden my horizons. I realise there's a lot of me, me, me in this intro, but it's because I still feel like it's the most extraordinary privilege for me to talk to and learn from these women. And so even if no one's listening, it remains the most personal of all my projects. Having said that, from the amazing feedback I've had and how much you have kept listening between seasons, I know you're going to love these conversations too. Please don't forget to rate and review the podcast either on Apple or on lovethepodcast.com forward slash chatting to a friend. I can't wait to hear how you love season two. Today on the podcast, I have the enormous pleasure of chatting to Tracy May. Tracy is one of these extraordinary people that is not only an artist, a holder of a Masters of Fine Art, worked in the Guggenheim, uh, in Paris, in all sorts of amazing museums in New York, and founded an artist collective, as you'll hear. But she's also a Guinness World Record holding speed skier and held the title of World Cup champion for five consecutive seasons. And she is on top of all of that, an amazing supporter of her very driven and athletic husband, as well as a survivor of breast cancer. There's so much to cover in this amazing interview, and I really hope you love it. Hi, Tracy. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for inviting me. I've been listening to all your podcasts and I'm very honored to be here. Oh, well, it's my absolute pleasure. Um, uh, I usually try to uh, explain when I actually know one of my guests and you and I, uh, we, we've known each other for quite a long time now. We are live in neighboring villages and we've actually even been on an adventure together. Yes, we have. It's quite amazing. It's really nice to be able to connect with uh, local adventurers in, in yeah. your own village. So it's it's great. I feel very lucky. Yeah, no, we do live in a, in a very uh, fortunate part of the world for that sort of thing, people all doing inspiring things. And talking of which, so I'm, I have to admit a little bit of embarrassment at having known you for so long and then reading your bio and actually thinking, I don't really know anything about her at all. So... <laughs> Let's go back and fill in the gaps from my like really embarrassing knowledge. And uh, and so you are, well, obviously you're American. And I did not know, I know you make jewellery, but I had absolutely no idea that you had such an impressive background in art. And it seems to have come from a very young age, sort of influenced by your parents and, and what they exposed you to as a child. My parents were art lovers, are art lovers, and having grown up in New York, in the greater New York area, uh, 
I had a lot of exposure at a young age to the magnificent museums that we have in New York City, the Metropolitan, the Museum of Modern Art, and um, some other great museums like the Guggenheim and the Rubin, uh, just a wealth of culture uh, that I grew up in. So I think that early exposure kind of set the the scene for me and for my love of art, of art history, of making art. Um, and my grandfather was actually a metalsmith and I inherited some of his tools and I started, uh, my first jewelry class I took when I was 15 years old. So that's where my metalsmithing jewelry background began. And so you knew from quite a young age that this was something you were going to do. Yes. Yeah. Uh, my sister and I both actually, um, we're lucky enough to take art classes, uh, doing life drawing. And my sister was more into drawing and painting than I was. I, I took uh, sculpture and jewelry making classes. And my, I think actually when I was 15, my, my mom gave me a pamphlet of the local art uh, society that that gave classes at nighttime after school hours mm. and said I had to pick a class and <laughs> I went through the pamphlet and I said oh this looks interesting so I took my first jewelry class with a an African-American woman named Panchita Carter and she was a huge influence on my early jewelry making days so she really taught me everything I knew um, and she was just a fabulous character. She was a really amazing person. So I was very lucky and fortunate to have uh, an artistic influence like her. And my mom actually did jewelry too. When, uh, when I was much younger, she took some classes at the art league and I saw her doing that. So I was kind of influenced in that way. And you said that your sister was more into drawing and painting. Do you feel there was a reason why you liked the sort of hands-on more physical things like the jewelry making, the metalsmith, the, the the sculpture? You know, some some people just really are more hands-on. It's kind of funny because now she has really gotten full blast into jewelry making herself. Um, and she has always done um, 3D work herself mm. uh, in addition. But her 2D work, I think comes from, I mean, I don't want to speak for her, but (laughs) uh, there are some people that are really good about writing journals and writing letters, and I'm not one of them. Mm. She was. And I think that that connection to paper and writing and journaling and that kind of thing uh, gives you a connection to also drawing and sketching. Mm. I'm not a big sketcher. (laughs) Mm. Mm. Um, I mean, I kind of, I'm starting to be because I realize that it, it works really well for my artwork and people like to see the whole process Mm. and that involves a lot more drawing so I'm I'm kind of getting into that now and then you went off and you did your your bachelor's and your master's in fine art I'm assuming that's what BFA and MFA stand for just exactly (laughs) (laughs) okay come on Katie come on extend your brain there (laughs) and and then you went off to Paris. How exciting was that? I mean, New York to Paris, crikey, you couldn't get too much, you know, they're like two of the main amazing cities in the world. What, how did that feel heading off to Paris as an artist in residence? 
Uh, that was incredible. Um, at the time, I actually had a dream job, so it was a little bit difficult. At the mm. time, I was um, doing my first mountain-making job at the American Museum of Natural History in New York City, and that was just such a an amazing experience to be involved in uh, putting up a permanent exhibit and using my metalsmithing skills for the first time in a museum setting. That was just such a great place to be in. And then I got this artist residency mm. in Paris at the Cité Internationale des Arts. And it was right across from Notre Dame. And it was, oh. it was going to be this dream, you know? So I had to leave one dream for another, but, um, you know, as a, as a young woman, you take these risks when you're offered them. So, mm. um, I finished that job at the Museum of Natural History. And I was at the time I was working on the Hall of Biodiversity. And I actually recently went back with my father. We we I took him to the to the museum while I was in New York uh two weeks ago and we saw some exhibits and we passed through that Hall of Biodiversity mm. and it was so amazing to see my work and to point out to him all the mounts that I, I did over a thousand mounts in that, in that. Wow. <laughs> um, but it was so nice to show him the collection of shells and lizards and snakes and all of the stuff that I mounted. Um, and it was still there in, in perfect condition and, you know, a permanent exhibit permanent, permanent is kind of a, a weird word because that, that has been up for 20 years or so now, but um the permanent exhibits usually last about 50 years. So wow. um, it has, a, it has a ways to go, yeah. but it's so nice to see people, other, you know, public people just appreciating the work that I did. So I'm happy that I took also the opportunity to go to Paris and mm. get that experience and just living there as an artist and absorbing everything. And I think I went to every museum in Paris, every <laughs> little gallery in Pal Paris. That was my goal was to go to, either a museum or a, a gallery every single day that I was there. And I did. And, there, you know, so, wow. and I didn't speak a word of French at the time. So. <laughs> um, it was, it was fun. It was an amazing experience. And I still have friends that I made during that artist residency. So uh -huh. um, it was, uh, it was, it was just great. And what did you take back to Par to New York from Paris? Um, really just the culture and living differently, you know, mm. um, in, in Paris, uh, that was actually quite a while ago. Now it was uh, 1998. It was before I started speed skiing. Mm. Um, just, um, absorbing a different city in a different way mm. and looking at all of the details and the culture and the history. Um, I'd say the history is a big thing because, mm. Europe obviously goes back a lot farther than <laughs> New York City does. So yeah. that was uh, the first time. Well, not the first time because I, I did um, some foreign language study in Spanish uh, in, in college. So I, I had gone to and I did a Greek and Roman mythology course in Greece. So I had I had been to Europe before, but that was the uh, probably the longest time I spent on my own just discovering things myself, mm -hmm. not in a course, not in a class. So so that was different for me. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned earlier, you said that's what a young woman would do. I mean, these are incredible opportunities. And this was, you know, as you say, in the late 90s. What were the challenges, if any, that you faced as a woman in this world? The 
biggest challenge at that time, I'd say, was my age and how I looked. I was I was very young and I looked it. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I was probably the youngest in my class um, to graduate uh, my, with my master's degree, um, in grad school. Mm. And then, you know, I was certainly the youngest to get that scholarship, uh, to go, uh, off to, to Paris. Mm. And it, it was, you know, even I, I recall even job interviews after grad school and, uh, stuff like that. It, it, it was difficult in that I had people ask me, and how do you feel if you had students that were older than you? And it was like, well, I'm experienced and I'm good enough for this job. So mm-hmm. if I weren't, you, you would, I wouldn't be here if you were interviewing me. <laughs> yeah. so, um, but, and I guess also people, because of my age at that time, not trusting that I had enough experience or mm-hmm. talent to do the things that I was called to be there for. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did and I made it through and I proved myself. So, mm. you know. And then, so you, you came back to New York, you started a, a bit of a collective. What inspired that? After graduate school, it, it wasn't so far between the artist residency and the, the loft that I had in Manhattan that I sort of created this group that, um, could exhibit in my loft. I was living illegally (laughs) in a, in a 3000 square foot loft. So 3000 square feet is, uh, it's hard to uh, describe how large that is, but it was massive. It was larger than most people's like the square footage of a house. Um, so there was a lot of space and I knew a lot of artists and we did some big parties and had, uh, art exposed on the walls. And it was just a great time in, in that area of New York city and Chelsea to be an artist, first of all, and to, uh, get people together who were like-minded. And mm. I was fortunate enough and being uh, street savvy enough to rent this huge space and illegally live in it without <laughs> getting caught. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, that was that was also part of my New York experience too. I had that loft for five years. So that was a a great experience. And then I moved to to Brooklyn with the rest of the artists. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That sounds like it's something out of a movie. That sounds you know, for for a non-American especially, that's just like proper movie style stuff. So but at the same time, now this is presumably quite an unusual combination an artist, but also someone who had been quite sporty as a child and realized that's something that you were still interested in. Right. So during this whole time, I had uh, continued to ski. And during my college years, I was a coxswain as well as a rower uh, on the rowing team. Mm -hmm. And I always kept fit. I always was training and continued a training program on my own. I belonged to a gym and I don't know what I was training for, (laughs) but I was ready, you know, (laughs) given the opportunity, I was ready. And then I got an opportunity. So, um, my sister actually going back a few years earlier, um, sent me some videos when I was at graduate school, she sent me some videos of her, 
uh, speed skiing at our oh. local ski resort up in Hunter, New York. And she got me, I was so excited about that. I had never seen it before. And well, I had seen it once on the, in the 92 Olympics with the crazy suits and everything on TV. And I was like, Oh my God, I want to try that. So the next time they hosted, uh, a, a speed ski event at Hunter, I went back home for it and and I started there. And then after the artist residency, after grad school, after, you know, when I was back in New York for a while, I was skiing every weekend up at Hunter. I had a season's pass and I was skiing and training and having fun and doing local races. There was a local race series that I joined a team on. And so that was really fun. And uh, a great social event uh, every weekend. And then uh, Naga Kasumi, who's the fastest Japanese man in the world, was hosting these speed ski events at at the Hunter Mountain Resort every year. And mm-hmm. uh, I had con- continued to keep in touch with him. And that year, I forget what year it was. It was probably... I think it was 1999. Uh Yeah, because it was after the artist residency. So he said, well, Tracy, you know, you you can't keep winning my races. And I said, well, what do you mean? (laughs) Of course I can. (laughs) So he um, suggested that I go out to Colorado because there was going to be a national championship out in Colorado in uh, Snowmass, actually. So I said, well, I'd like to go out to Colorado, but I don't want to, I don't want to be in this, you know, kind of downhill category with the downhill skis and just a regular downhill suit. I want to try the rubberized suit and the crazy helmet and stuff. So Naga lent me a pair of skis and then through emails and calling random people who I got their phone numbers from looking them up in the yellow pages, I, I, you know, found people who were willing to lend me equipment or sell me equipment. Mm. And, uh, you know, I I was calling random ex-Olympians from the 92 Olympics saying, hey, I want to go to Colorado and race. What do you have for me? And they were like, who are you? (laughs) (laughs) So so that's how I started. And I, I flew out to Colorado, actually, the bar that I worked out um, I, that was another thing that's not in my bio, actually. I was a bartender uh, <gasps> for for some dive bars, um, and that's how I made some extra money. You were so a one bartender at the- Coyote Ugly, weren't you? I was, yeah. Coyote Ugly, um, Hogs and Heifers, and the Village Idiot, and the Patriot Saloon. Oh, and Yogi's, <sighs> actually, also. So <laughs> I was at the Village Idiot at the time. And they were my first official speed ski sponsor. They sponsored me and gave me enough money to fly out to Colorado and do my first speed ski race. So that was just, you know, that first of all, that was a surprise. They knew I was going and I, I didn't ask for sponsorship money or anything. They just uh, pulled it together and gave me a going away present, which was very nice. So, um, and I, so I went out to Colorado and that was kind of the start of my speed ski career. I was hooked. I had to do more. (laughs) What, and what hooked you? Uh, The speed, (laughs) (laughs) the speed I had gone, I think in that race, I did 186 kilometers an hour. So, you know, just a bit over a hundred miles an hour, a hundred, it was 120 miles an hour, I think. actually. So, um, yeah. So. 
everybody there and the Speedski family, it's like a family. And you, mm. once you get those speeds and, and you're okay at it, people just kind of take you under their wing. They're like, Oh, you have to go to Europe. You have to do this. You have to race in the world cup. And um, so I went home after that race and I kind of had this melancholy, like, Oh, I really want to do that, you know? And, mm-hmm. um, and it, I started making some more random phone calls to weird yeah. people that I had never met. And, um, and I booked myself a ticket and went to Europe and started racing there. Um, and that was, that was the beginning. So the beginning. And, uh, so I'm just going to skip forward slightly because I remember once being at your house and, um, my husband saying to your husband, wow, look at all the trophies. Um, are they all yours? Are they mostly yours? And he's him saying, well, they're mostly mine. He said, I have more, but she has the better ones. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to come on to, you know, Philippe and, and his career, but uh, we'll just talk about it briefly. But I want to, you know, so you, you know, you went from borrowing kit and buying it off the yellow page, you know, people at the yellow pages to becoming, you are, well, you tell me because I could read it off your bio, but you, you know, you were for five years in a row. Right. So I have, I'm a, I consecutively, I'm a five time world cup champion in speed skiing. And I mm. also was, uh, and, and that's FIST Federation International Disky. So that's a FIST mm-hmm. world cup globe that I won five years consecutively. Yeah. And then I also have some other titles like pro world champion and FIST world champion and um i have the um, hold the american women's speed record uh you still hold that yeah i set that in 2006 and it hasn't been broken yet so that's not a world record it's the american record so Mm -hmm. to be clear (laughs) and are you still in the guinness book of world records um well yes actually nobody has beaten my five uh consecutive world cup globes so, um, in, in any, and that's in any sport. No, um, it- Lindsay Vaughn, I think had seven, uh, consecutive. Mm. Um, and then there was one other woman, uh, who I think it's on my bio. I'm so sorry. I forget yes. her name off the top of my head, but a French uh, woman. Anne-Marie Moser-Proel. Yes. And I believe that was in the eighties or nineties. The seventies. The seventies. Oh, so excuse excuse my own lack of knowledge in my own <laughs> sport, but yeah. So so I'm kind of I'm right up there with Lindsay Vaughn for the the number of World Cup globes. Um, she has a couple more than me. Um, Michaela Schifrin also I think has five globes, but they were not consecutive. So um, as far as sheer numbers, I'm I'm right up there with those amazingly talented women so well well as you well should be as you should be and and this you know that and that's extraordinary why is it that speed skiing is not as well known then as the the downhill and the alpine or all that well you know it's interesting and especially in the last few years they've started calling downhill speed skiing and yeah. it's it's actually not <laughs> in the uh-huh. on American TV you hear them calling and and they are speed events however they're not speed skiing in speed skiing we go straight downhill and they clock us for how many miles an hour we go and yeah. that that clock is set at a hundred meter time trap so it's an average of the speed 
uh, over the 100 meters at the bottom of any given track. So Uh it's always based on a 100 meter time trap. And um, we go very, very fast, a lot faster than than downhill events. Um, And as far as the traction and why it has taken off or not taken off, I will place blame, I think, on American media. (laughs) If it's Mm. not an Olympic sport in America, Mm. it's nothing. So unfortunately, that's that's the big reason why. Um, And why is it not an Olympic sport? It was a demo sport in 1992, and it had one of the highest ratings uh, television-wise of any sport in the Olympics. Mm. I think in, in the Winter Olympics that year, I think it was just... Uh, just behind figure skating, wow. which, as you know, is enormous. So mm. um, it it is popular as far as spectators go. Um, unfortunately, a man, young man named Nicola Bruschetti, uh, who is a Swiss speed skier, passed away. He was he was killed uh, during a training run. He was hit by a snow cat, a groomer. Um, which obviously has nothing to do with speed skiing. Um, He was out on an open track and had an accident. And in, you know, unfortunately that, that accident has always been associated with speed skiing. (sighs) If you ask anyone from the general public that knows just a little bit about speed skiing, they'll always remember there was a death in the 1992 Olympics of a speed skier. Um, Unfortunately, it's a stigma that goes with the sport of being too dangerous. Um, Even though it had nothing to do with actual speed skiing, it was a tragic accident that would have killed anybody would have killed any skier on the slope. And it's, you know, very sad, very sad for the family who is actually a local family uh, here in the Verbier area in Bend. So um, it's, you know, it's a very sad history, part of the history of speed Mm. skiing. Um, and what do you do in speed skiing? This might sound like a really stupid question, but how do you get faster? So it's that's a really interesting question, and everybody asks it because oh, every you know, no, it's, everybody wants to know. But you just get in your tuck and go straight. So what makes the difference between you mm. and me, or you and somebody else, or you and mm. somebody heavier? Don't you have to be heavy and big to be a fast speed skier? And if you look at the top women. The answer is no. Um, at the time of my, you know, during my my five year sequence of of winning everything, let's I call it your reign. Let's call it your reign. <laughs> my, yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, at the time of my reign. Now that sounds too pretentious. Um, <laughs> um, at my strongest, mm-hmm. I was also my smallest and fittest. And I'm Ooh. I'm I'm I have a petite stature. I'm you know, for, for your listeners, I'm five foot three. At the time I was a young woman and I weighed probably 110, 115 pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was quite small. Um, and I like to describe myself as having been very aerodynamic. So aerodynamics is, plays a big role in how you go faster. Um, we used to do a lot of training in the wind tunnel to perfect our equipment and, and our positions. Um, and, when you look at speed skiers, there are different nuances in their positions. Some people are higher, some people are lower, some people have a narrow stance, some people have a really wide stance. And it's just finding what works best for you mm-hmm. and getting that position dialed in and 
you know, strength also takes a, it mm. plays a big role. Um, although I was small, I was really, really strong at the time. Mm. So, and also, I seem to remember recently ish that you, as you now are the ski tech for your husband, Philippe May, yes. uh, who is very successful in uh, speed skiing himself, that you made the difference by knowing what wax to have on his skis. Am I correct? Yes. So absolutely. Ski preparation is plays a huge factor. And if you're off on a humid day and you're putting wax that's good for dry conditions, you can be slower than molasses. It is, <laughs> it's very, very important. So, um, yes, that's correct. I still, I am still involved in speed skiing, even though I'm retired. I am the wax technician for my husband, who is also a very fast racer, one of the fastest men in on the circuit and one of the fastest men in history. His fastest speed is 250 kilometers oh. an hour. Oh um, my God. So yeah. <laughs> and um, oh, just for your listeners, by the way, my, my fastest speed was 248 uh, kilometers an hour. So, oh, excuse me. Sorry, two thirty-eight kilometers an hour. You can erase that. <laughs> yeah, in in miles an hour, it's one hundred and forty-eight miles an hour. So um, unbelievable. So and and is there fear? Is there fear, or is it just one of these things that once you get to know it, like you know, I interviewed Geraldine Fastnacht, and she said it's not about the fear; it's about the freedom and the feeling of it. But where is there a line? Is there ever real fear? You know, I think just before I retired, I started getting scared, mm. <laughs> like really scared, real fear and mm. of certain things, of certain tracks and certain situations because I crashed so many times and I just didn't want to crash anymore. I didn't want to wear that tight suit anymore. Just everything was becoming uncomfortable. When you first start, there's definitely more adrenaline that comes with it than, you know, when you, when you've been doing it for 14 years, I, don't think you have the same rush of adrenaline mm, that, mm. that people associate with speed skiing. Um, however, I mean, it always feels good to speed ski, but when you get to a certain elite level, I think of any sport, you are always looking to be the absolute best. And in mm. that you need to be so focused and so aware of every single thing you're doing mm. that there's no room for, um, I don't want to say there's no room for fun because, you know, you should yeah. be having fun no matter what you're doing, but you're, you're so dialed in, um, on the elite level. And I, I really think that's with any sport. You're so focused on what you're doing that you, there's no room really for true fear. Mm -hmm. Um, I think you need to have respect for yeah. an extreme sport, any extreme sport, um, so that you don't get injured. and. I, I guess that's more more of it. You you need to respect what you're doing and what you're putting your body through mm. uh, to achieve the goals that you want to have. But I guess the fear kind of dissipates. I guess there should always be a healthy fear of things because yeah. yeah. if if you have no fear at all, the then comes stupidity, and yeah. unfortunately that can be very dangerous. So um, yeah, so you have to have a little fear, I guess. Oh, yes. Well, <laughs> gives me a little fear just thinking about it. Um, and so 
So all through this, you know, and, and, and as a result of this, you know, I see you've been inducted into the Jewish Sports Hall of Fame and you are up for the U.S. National Ski Hall of Fame or you've been nominated for that. Is that? I was nominated. Oh, I actually were. got a phone call last night and oh. unfortunately I did not make it in. There oh, no. were, um, so there were six candidates that were actually nominated out of, I think he told me, 75 potential candidates. Wow. So I was one of six that were nominated and they chose four. And he told me that I lost by two votes. So every <gasps> vote counts. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> so, oh, but wow. that's okay. We'll, you know, he said that he'll put my name forth again next year. Look, when you, when you get to the level of being nominated for something yeah. like that, every person on that nominee list deserves to be there. So, yeah. you know, there are just incredible skiers that are in the U S sports hall of Fa ski, uh, ski hall of fame. And it, it was a real honor to be nominated officially uh, and down to one of those six people. So I was very proud of myself for that and they'll try again next year. So we'll see. That how, is we'll see extraordinary. That Congratulations. As you, you say, just getting to that top six is uh, extraordinary and well-deserved. Thanks. And thanks so much. All during your sporting career, how did you keep up your love of art and your passion for that? You know, I'm, I'm kind of a jack of all trades. I do so many things. And, um, <laughs> during the speed ski years, my, my main years of racing and competing, doing the whole World Cup tour and mm. such, I, was going back and forth to Europe. Um, I would go for th three months um, because that's all you're allowed on a travel visa. Mm -hmm. And then, um, so during those three months, it was speed skiing, training speed skiing, and just only speed skiing, skiing, mm -hmm. skiing, skiing. And then I would go back to New York and then I would have three months of working at different museums and being able to focus on my artwork um, mm. and also a little bit of bartending for extra cash. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I kind of divided my, my year up in, um, in a way that when I was racing, that was full on and I could just focus on that. Mm. And then when I was back in the U S I was, making money, working in a creative environment, making artwork, trying to be in galleries myself. Um, I think that's actually why I ended up um, going full force with the jewelry because it was smaller. It was easier to show, mm. easier to sell. You know, nobody wants like a gigantic sculpture with video installation in their bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> No, not so much. Yeah. And those were the kinds of things I was making so. yeah. <laughs> um, in, in my fine art world. So I kind of slowly stopped doing those big art installations and uh, started doing more of the jewelry. And I enjoyed the jewelry. You know, it's a creative outlet for me. I, I make some more basic pieces that people can wear every day. And then I also do um, kind of more fine art jewelry that I can enter in different competitions and, mm. you know, really express myself creatively with, uh, with that. So 
Um, well, two of my favorite pieces of jewelry have been gifts from you. So the, oh. the, the beautiful earrings and that absolutely glorious necklace you gave me a few years ago, which I just adore. Oh, so you. I can vouch for it personally. <laughs> <laughs> See, um, and you appreciate it every day. So and, unlike a, a large sculpture that might have <laughs> gotten co- collected dust. So. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And then, and so... Did you, you met Philippe, I assume, on the speed ski circuit or ride? I did. I did. Yeah. yeah. We were friends for a couple of years before we we started dating. So um, that was, it was nice. You know, it was nice mm. to be friends with somebody and kind of know uh, what their interests were and, and just gradually kind of gravitate towards one another. So yeah, that, yeah. that was a nice... Um, a, a nice way to meet the love of my life, I think. <laughs> yeah, and he's a bit of a local hero around these parts. How did that feel, sort of fitting in? Because when I first met you, you were still only managing to do the sort of three months at a time, weren't you? You know, we we did the the long distance commute for years, uh, mm. for like ten years before we got married. So, <laughs> wow. Um, but it worked. You know, he when we first started dating did not, he didn't have the job that he has now. Um, so he could also come to the U S for a couple mm. months at a time. So it kind of worked. We both went back and forth and it was fun and exciting and adventurous. And, mm. um, you know, there, there were always a couple months. No, uh, I don't think we ever, we didn't really have more than a couple months apart at a time. Mm. So, um, but yeah, it was hard to make it work at first, but I think when you, truly find that person that you connect with so well on so many levels. And, um, you know, Philippe is, he's not just a speed skier. He is an amazing speed skier, but um, he also has background in woodworking. He's a master woodworker. So he also likes to create things with his hands and uh, work in 3D materials. And he actually, on a couple uh, artist residencies and things that I was involved in over the years in New York City, he actually helped me on a few of them. And um, we we just gel together. We always, Mm. you know, manage to find things to do together that are, you know, not just speed skiing. (laughs) (laughs) So I think sometimes people think, oh, those are the speed skiers. That's the only thing they have in common. (laughs) Like when they quit speed skiing, let's see how that lasts. (laughs) But um, that's not the case. Oh, well, I know know you to be, I mean, nobody ever knows what's in uh, someone else's relationship, but I know you to be a really solid pairing for sure. And I... I'm interested to know how you have felt going from being sort of the athlete into the support role, because you have a huge role in his current uh, athletic career, if you like, um, because obviously he's still speed skiing, but he's a very talented uh, long distance cyclist. And how does it feel like being the support for that rather than the, the athlete? Well, um, I love it. It's the for, as far as the cycling goes. I love cycling, but I will never be a long distance cyclist. <laughs> um, that is not one of my retirement dreams. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so the fact that I can be involved in some way in his um, in his sporting endeavors that are mm. really difficult. Um, is a big deal. I don't Mm. think um, it would be possible for him to do 
some of the events that he does without without support. And when mm-hmm. I say support, I mean like year-round organization. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it's kind of a part-time job um, organizing, getting crew together. Uh, mm-hmm. And we're very fortunate. You've met most of our crew, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, you've been on our crew before. Uh-huh, so. <laughs> we were two wives supporting our two cycling husbands right, in Race Across right. America in 2015. Exactly. Um, with and, you as crew chief, me yeah. as queen of the mothership. And that I'm was the beginning. So you, yeah. I, I am embarrassed to say that you were there when you saw me, probably not at my finest moments, but um, but things have gotten better that, since then. <laughs> I think we all had times in that week where we were not at our best. Right. Extreme uh, uh, sleep deprivation, let's shall we say. Yes. yes. <laughs> to, be, to be blamed for most of that. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but also the first time you do any event, as extraordinary as race across America, mm-hmm. there's just a lot of stress and pressure on the yeah. person that's organizing most of it. So, yeah. and that in that case, it was me. Um, mm-hmm. And it, you know, um, it's uh, it was <laughs> it was not always easy. It's getting easier now that I've done you know four or five of these major mm-hmm. events. So that's that's a, a good thing. And in my experience in doing them and getting to know the race organizers and the other racers and mm-hmm. the coaches and just feeling more comfortable with the surroundings has made such a difference. And I mm. really enjoy it. I really enjoy the, the people that we've met, you know, it's much mm. like the, the speed ski world. Ultra cycling is its own little family yeah. and um, everybody is just you know, they're incredible athletes and they're incredible people. Everybody has mm. their own story and their own background and history and where they've come from and how they've succeeded and overcome a lot of difficulties. And it's it's just an amazing and fortunate experience and part of our lives that that we're mm. able to to have and continue with. Um and you know, it's we're we're fortunate enough because Philippe is physically fit enough to be able to yeah. do these ultra cycling events. So, so that's a great thing. I'm happy to support him for that. Talking of physically fit and support. So just over two years ago, you were diagnosed with, a, I think, if I understand correctly, a fairly rare form of breast cancer. And how was the support within your, your speed ski family, your cycling family? And how, how important was that for you? From one day to the next? I didn't have cancer. And then the next day I had cancer. So if you think about it like that, that's how the diagnosis felt to me. It wasn't like I felt great and a hundred percent and physically fit, which I did at the time. Uh And then the next day, all of a sudden I was like dying. That's not how it works. So, um, so yes, in 2019, I was diagnosed with, uh, it's called triple negative breast cancer. And there are several different types of breast cancer. And the most common or the ones that we hear about most are the um, HER2 positive and HER2 negative. And those are estrogen-based hormonal cancers. Um, Mm. My cancer did not have any of the three hormones that are involved with most cancers. That's why it's called triple negative. Mm. And in addition to that, once they did the lumpectomy, they discovered that the tumor itself was medullary, which means it's called medullary because it's actually shaped like a little brain, um, Mm. which is even more rare. So I think I... 
uh, it's been a while since I've looked at the statistics, but the TNBC is quite rare. And if you look up medullary tumors, there's like no information on them. I think it's less than 0.05% actually, or something like that. Um, of tumors that are medullary. So TNBC is actually a very aggressive form of cancer. And I was fortunate that I was diagnosed at a very early stage. I was diagnosed at stage one, grade three. Um, mm-hmm. The grade three is related to how aggressive the cancer is. Right. So stage one, obviously, is fairly early. And mm. the tumor itself was just less than one centimeter. So it was pretty mm. small. And the way I was diagnosed, I think, is important to discuss uh, yeah. for your listeners because I had been having regular mammograms and sonograms and they all came up clear. And, you know, after you have several of these here in Switzerland, anyway, they tell you, okay, well, you can have them every two years. So I was not due to have mine for another year and a half. And Mm. I noticed a red mark on my chest, not on my breast, on my upper chest. Mm. And it was not going away. So I went to a dermatologist and I was thinking, oh, perhaps I, I, you know, could this be cancer? And it was very strange. And my aunt actually had um, breast cancer and she passed away of it. She had IBC, which is inflammatory breast cancer. That's another Mm. rare type of breast cancer. So I had it in my head that that's what I had, but I didn't. (laughs) Um, Mm. And that breast cancer also does not, it comes up clear on mammograms and sonograms and it um, presents itself with skin skin rippling and redness of the skin. Um, So that's why I, I thought I had that. But the dermatologist said, no, that's well, I don't think it's breast cancer, but it doesn't, it looks strange, but let's send you to your gynecologist and she'll have a look and she'll set you up with a, an, another mammogram, even though you're not due for one. Mm. So that's the route I went and I had another mammogram and they said, no, everything looks fine. It looks the same as last time. Mm. You still have cysts and that's normal. Um, so I, I insisted on, I had never had a biopsy of the cysts and I said, mm. well, can we do a biopsy? Because I feel like there's something wrong. And, Mm. um, the one cyst was very large, but that was not the cancerous one. Um, and they drained that and that was fine. And then the smaller cyst that was harder to get was actually hard and there was nothing to drain. So they did a biopsy Mm. of that and that was the one that was cancerous. So, um, the, the point of my story is that you need to push for your, own health advocacy. And really, if you feel like something is wrong, ask questions and ask for biopsies. You know, we all have insurance here in Switzerland and for use that insurance. If doctors say, oh no, you don't need this. I don't, I don't know why doctors say that. Um, There's, there's no reason not to explore further, you know? Mm. So long story short, I had a lumpectomy and I had radiation after that. The Mm. TNBC does not call for hormonal therapy or, and my tumor was small enough that it didn't call for chemotherapy luckily. Mm. So um, the radiation therapy it did have some side effects on me. I had major fatigue for a long time, um, yeah. but I was still able to work and still able to, uh, I didn't work that summer when I was having radiation, but, um, mm-hmm. but after that, the following winter, I was able to get back on skis and start getting stronger. And, 
um, and here I am. So yeah. And so I had two questions from that. Why were you having mammograms? Is that because of your aunt? Because it's not yeah. normal here in Switzerland until you're fifty. Oh yeah, in the U.S. it's over forty. So, oh, there you go. Um, That's why then. <laughs> but and also, you know, my aunt did have breast cancer, and my uh, my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, had. Um, cancer when she was very young actually but um but in the u.s it's kind of standard over 40 and the other thing i was going to say was you said earlier in the interview that you never knew what you were training for but you were ready and you said you were ready for your speed ski career and from what i remember you were ready for this as well because it played a huge part in your recovery if i'm correct yeah yeah absolutely when i said i was ready for for a speed skiing, I also meant, yeah, I was ready for anything because, yeah. you know, after I retired from speed skiing, I actually continued to train <laughs> yeah. and I was like, what, you know, why am I training? What, what am I doing this for? You know, <laughs> I mean, yeah, everybody wants to be fit and everything, but, mm. um, I do think it, it played a big role, uh, in how I looked at cancer and I hate to say things like, oh, I'm going to beat this and I beat cancer. And, you know, those things sound so, like, I don't know, everybody says them, but mm. I, I felt it more than just saying it, you know, mm-hmm. like when I was diagnosed and when I had the lumpectomy, I just like, there was no question in my mind that I wasn't going to overcome it. Yeah. And I think that came from my background of training and winning and fighting and, and just being strong. And mm. Philippe actually played a big role. You did ask me about my support. Um, mm. I had great support. I obviously all my friends got together. You came to visit me when I mm. when I first found out. You were one of the first people I told. Um, and it, mm. that was difficult. Just telling people yeah. was difficult. And um, Philippe played a major role in my recovery and pushing me to get on the the indoor bike like two days after my lumpectomy. You know, I got home from the hospital and he said, okay, now you got to get on Zwift. And I was like, what? <laughs> Crazy man. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I don't feel like it. But he was like, nope, you got to do half an hour every day. And I did. Uh, and I'm so thankful to him for pushing me to do that because, yeah. you know, I, they don't, they don't tell you a lot of things or, or maybe I missed some things, you know, lost in mm-hmm. translation, going through the whole cancer thing in French, which is not my yeah. first language, obviously Th- like that, that was a struggle, you know, mm, yeah. <laughs> uh, learning all these words and terms and stuff in English, yeah. no less learning them in, in French yeah. was a big uh, learning curve for me. So after, you know, Philippe, like pushed me to get on the bike and stuff only two days after my lumpectomy. <laughs> um, I did some reading and it, it actually, you know, the newer theories about not uh, getting lymphoma after these big surgeries where they removed my sentinel node also. I didn't have any lymph node involvement, but they have to remove mm-hmm. the sentinel node to, in order to, to biopsy it and make sure that it, the cancer hasn't spread anywhere, which mm. it did not. So thankfully, but there's a big risk of getting lymphoma, which is when mm. your, your lymph nodes swell. And that's a permanent, um, that's permanent damage actually wow. after these kind of surgeries. So you want to avoid that in all circumstances. And one of the things that they now say to help avoid getting lymphoma is to do exercise 
pretty quickly after mm. your surgery. So mm. um, it was Philippe's instinct to do that. I'm sure he didn't know that mm. at the time, but um, it was his instinct to push me to to be fit and to be mobile right after the surgery. And um, and that was that was a lifesaver, I think, for me, both mentally mm. and physically. Yeah. Well, of course, there's the mental aspect to that, that, that you know, this becoming so much more to the forefront now, which you presumably, and he obviously knew as well, but you know, that moving is so good for your mental health. Right, right, exactly. A sedentary body is a sad body, you know, we, yeah. we need to move. <laughs> yeah. And you are now cancer free. At the moment, it's no evidence of disease. They don't say cancer free until at least five years. Um, right. So, we're we're going the right direction. So um, yes, no evidence of disease at the moment, which is great. And um, mm -hmm. I get scans and see doctors every three months or or oh, more, <laughs> and yeah. um, which is a good thing. I'd rather be observed and in good hands and spoken mm -hmm. to and looked at. I feel comfortable with that. So it's yeah. it's good. And what did you? Of all the things, I was sort of thinking, you know, the sort of challenges that you faced, the, you know, I wouldn't say your art career sounds like it was a challenge, but obviously you had to learn and you had to, you know, it's, it's, it's not, a, it's not the world that everybody inhabits. So it's different. And then being, you know, world champion and then fighting cancer. What, which of those do you feel has given you the most to learn from or, sorry, waffly question. Do you think they've all contributed to sort of personal growth? You know, that's a good question. I don't think there's one thing that stands out. I think all of my experiences form me and I think we're ever evolving. I don't think there's one mm. definition that can describe me in like a sentence. So mm. You know, I think all of the aspects of my life, the art, the speed skiing, the cancer, kind of everything comes together um, mm. to, to being my present me. So um, in, inclusive of, of being Philippe's manager for, for the cycling uh, mm. endeavors, races and stuff like that. So, you know, it's, it's a comprehensive being, I guess, state of being. Mm. I don't, I don't know if one thing has had more influence over another because art, obviously, you know, I knew when I started my speed ski career, if I had to put my art career on hold for a while, that, that would happen, but I could go back to it because you can't be mm. an old speed skier, but you can certainly be an old <laughs> artist. So. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, going back to the the stage of where where I was working at the Museum of Natural History and then I had the opportunity to go to Paris. You know, it was just shortly after that that I had the opportunity to become a speed skier. So yeah. <laughs> that that all kind of happened within, you know, 2 years of my life. So looking back, mm. yeah, those were huge 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 opportunities that I had. And I took them all. So <laughs> I can't say that one was more important than the next mm -hmm. or, or not. So um, I'm just happy that I, I am not a person that says no too frequently to opportunities yeah. for adventure. So um, 
maybe I seek uh, out some of these adventures a little bit less now because I'm lucky to have a husband that creates his own adventures and I'm happy to ride along mm. on those. So though that's, that yeah. that's what's working for me right now. So um, mm. I think, you know, looking back, I don't think when I got cancer in 2019, I, I was not ready for that. I didn't mm. ever in my mind think that I would be, a cancer survivor uh, that early in my life. Um, yeah. So that, that was a pretty big shock. So, you know, that in that way that had a pretty big impact. However, it doesn't stand out more than any, anything else that I've done in my life. So mm. it doesn't define me. Good. So what's next? Wow. Well, <laughs> you know, who knows? Living life and I'm, I'm working on getting my jewelry studio back up to par and really focusing on getting good equipment in that studio. And I want to really pursue that part of my life again, I think. Um, mm. And as you know, I'm a ski instructor, so we're coming into mm -hmm. into ski season, and I've mm -hmm. already got some bookings for for the holiday season, which is great with my regular clients, mm -hmm. and I love them. And I'm excited for snow. It was snowing today, this morning when I woke up, I felt like a child. I was like, I ran in the house. I was like, it's snowing. <laughs> you know? So, <laughs> um, you know, I think just moving forward and taking what life has to throw at me and, uh, and taking it on full force, I guess. Excellent. And what, where can we get hold of your jewelry? I have a jewelry website, which badly also needs to be <laughs> re, re, uh, <laughs> reassessed there. And I also have an Etsy store, but my Instagram is the most updated. I, I put the newest, uh, jewelry on my Instagram, which is Swiss Bijou at Swiss Bijou. Um, and my, Lovely. my jewelry website is jewelry by Tracy.com. And that's jewelry Excellent. spelled the American way and Tracy with an IE. <laughs> awesome. I'll make sure that's all in the show notes. So everyone awesome. can Thank just you. straight on Thanks. it. And now the last thing I am actually a little bit scared by your challenge, Katie, because they're all challenging, but like this one actually, Properly scares me. Tell me. So my challenge for you would be to try speed skiing. <laughs> and I don't mean with downhill skis and a downhill suit, because I think you've, you've probably been close to that before. When, when I say mm -hmm. try speed skiing, we've got to put real fairings and a real rubber suit oh on you God. and a real helmet <laughs> and see how you do. <laughs> Okay. Um, the the um, question will be where. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so I okay. we'll have to work out the where, when, and and how. But um, all right. Well, as you know, my winter gets pretty busy with another uh, skiing sport. But I tell you what, I'm going to say challenge provisionally accepted ah, yay. because that really does <laughs> like scare the bejesus out of me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so if you can. Um, get me to somewhere that, or not physically get me, but find out somewhere I can do it in a sort of a baby steps type way. 
then I will accept the challenge of uh, the, the first challenge for me with putting on the suit right. <laughs> with a body consciousness going on oh, there. No, no, no. Um, the suit is great. It sucks everything in. There's a, oh, it well, makes then you look really me good. <laughs> okay. And then we will, uh, we'll, we'll take it from there. Okay. So a provisional acceptance. Awesome. Yes. That's thank fabulous. you. Great. <laughs> I'm excited oh, for Katie, that. Thank you so much. I can't, honestly believe as I said at the beginning that we've known each other for such a long time and there's so much that I didn't know it's just wonderful to sort of dig into the background of people that you know well and I'm so thrilled that you agreed to be on the show I'm I'm really it was amazing thank you thank you thanks take care bye Thanks for listening. I really hope you enjoyed that. I'll be back next week with some more great chat with another amazing woman. Bye-bye.